It's a hot day in August 2010. A CIA asset is tailing a white Suzuki Jeep out of the Peshawar Valley and into the parched hills of northeast Pakistan. Under normal circumstances, he would have given up a long time ago. But today, he's under orders to follow the Suzuki to the end of the earth, unless he runs out of gas first. The analysts back at headquarters are obsessed with the Suzuki's driver, a courier named Al-Kuwaiti. They know he's got close ties to the terrorist network Al-Qaeda, and they think he might eventually point them to the network's founder, Osama bin Laden. Finally, on the outskirts of the city of Abbottabad, the Suzuki quits the main road and heads down a rutted dirt track. It comes to a stop at a compound surrounded by 15-foot-high white concrete walls. What's al-Kuwaiti doing here? Could bin Laden be inside? As it happens, that reconnaissance mission is the first step in a nine-month journey that will lead to the famous raid by SEAL Team 6 that ends in bin Laden's death. And much of that journey will take place in the imagination. Because to make the decisions they need to make, the analysts have to see things they can't actually see both now and in the future. For months, they gather information from experts, from aerial photos, from assets on the ground. They look at the smallest details to try to define what they mean. Why do the people in the compound burn their trash instead of having it collected? Why don't they have a landline or internet? Who is the tall man who paces each day under a tarpaulin? When they're reasonably sure that the man is bin Laden, they begin to plan how to capture or kill him. They invite ideas from their team, no matter how outlandish. They could throw stink bombs over the wall to flush the occupants out. They could place a loudspeaker nearby and broadcast as the voice of Allah commanding bin Laden to come outside. They could get planes to fly over and bomb the compound. They could send in helicopters full of special forces. They try to predict every possible consequence of every possible action. A bomb might make it impossible to identify bin Laden. A raid might provoke a counterattack. They also analyze failures of the past, the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, the botched rescue of American hostages in Iran in 1980. Over the course of those nine months, the CIA and their military partners come up with 37 different plans to get into the compound. In the end, they choose one, and it works. On May 2nd, 2011, the Navy SEALs launch a surprise attack by helicopter and kill Osama bin Laden. For the best-selling author Steven Johnson, the bin Laden raid isn't just an example of top-notch military intelligence. It's also a model for confronting the big decisions we all need to make in our own lives. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded The Next Big Idea Club, along with the authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, and Adam Grant, to connect people to some of the boldest new thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, how to make life's biggest decisions.
The story you heard up top about the Bin Laden raid comes from a fantastic book by my old friend, Stephen Johnson, called Farsighted, How We Make the Decisions That Matter the Most. Stephen is the author of 10 other books, including one called The Ghost Map, about a devastating 19th century cholera epidemic in London, which should be essential reading today. Stephen's also the host of the Wondery podcast, American Innovations. For today's episode of The Next Big Idea, he sat down with Next Big Idea Club curator Malcolm Gladwell in front of a live audience at Betaworks Studios in New York. You may recall that 15 years ago, Malcolm wrote his own book about decision-making called Blink, where he argues that snap judgments can often lead us to better decisions than meticulous planning. Speaking of meticulous planning, we at The Next Big Idea were not 100% ready for the events of the last few weeks. Stephen and Malcolm spoke before the coronavirus pandemic turned all of our plans upside down and before the protests over the death of George Floyd. That's why neither topic comes up in a discussion about how to prepare for the future. But I think the conversation you're about to hear is as relevant now as it was then. In fact, maybe even more. And we did go back and talk to Stephen Johnson about the pandemic and about the sorts of innovations that might come out of it. That conversation is part of our special series, Rethinking Big Ideas. You can find a link in the episode notes for today's show. This is a book that talks about how to make a decision the process, the kind of right way to approach a difficult problem. And you choose as one of your central stories the way the Pentagon chose to go after bin Laden. Yep. Why that story? Farsighted is a book about a particular kind of decision, right? It's, it's a, a complex kind of long-term decision. When, you know, it's not about the passing choices that we make every day in our lives. It's about when you hit a real crossroads in your life, when you have an important career decision or you're trying to decide whether to move somewhere or if you're in a business and you're trying to decide whether to launch a big product, all those kind of decisions that, that really require a certain amount of time. And it's making the argument that the most of us don't have a process for making those kinds of decisions. And it turns out there, there actually has been a significant kind of advance in our understanding of how we make these kinds of decisions, and particularly in our ability to make predictions, because so much of a long-term decision is about predicting the future and predicting the consequences of our actions and things like that. And so it, it occurred to me that there would be an interesting book that would to, to look at those kinds of choices, because those are the choices that end up kind of defining our life. When we look back at them, where I went to college, what kind of career I ended up having, you know, where I ch- decided to live. Those you really are the think things. where you go to college is a defining event in your life? I think that it, you, you end up maybe just because of the people you meet more than the... But this is exactly where I would raise a little bit of an eyebrow about yeah, this great. book. Not to fix it on the college thing, but the yeah. college thing is super interesting. Yeah. The college thing would be, strike me as exactly the kind of thing that this sort of thoughtful analysis doesn't apply to. Because the thing that would make a college experience either useful or not useful is almost entirely unpredictable. But look, I think you're right in the sense that there is... There, there's a huge amount of uncertainty with a decision like that, and there's a huge amount of uncertainty in any kind of choice that has long-term consequences, right? Because the future is really unpredictable. Mm-hmm. So the question is not like, how can you have absolute certainty about the consequences of this choice? Um, part of the question is, it, I think it's important to acknowledge the uncertainty, right? It's important to like recognize the parts of your vision that are, are not clear, 
um, where it is unpredictable, and then look at the parts of the, of the choice that are more predictable and, and separate those two things out. That's one of the things that happened in the bin Laden raid. They spent a lot of time trying to evaluate their certainty levels in trying to make this decision. Um, and that process of recognizing where your kind of field division is blurry and where your field division is more accurate, there, there's no way of reducing the complexity of a choice like that down to you know, 100% accuracy. But can you slightly improve your odds, meaningfully improve your odds in producing a better outcome? That's what I think the, the book is trying to argue. Yeah. Are, are there a class of decisions where approaching the decision systematically will lead to a worse outcome? Well, I think you talk about them a lot in Blink, right? I mean, I think one of the things that the books kind of complement each other, even though they're looking at it from different angles, there are situations where time is of the essence, where overthinking it can be a serious problem. And then there are a number of cases. Um, what's the thing in Blink about the um, is this person having a heart attack algorithm that you talk about, where instead of looking at a huge amount of data, there are these three questions that you ask of the patient, and, and that's the simplest way to figure out if they're having a heart attack because it's a time-sensitive question. Those are situations, though, where the calculation and the algorithm for making the choice has been kind of pre-computed. Like, people have looked at endless studies of how to detect a heart attack, and so you can condense down, because of all those kind of earlier simulations of the choice that have happened with other people having a heart attack or not having a heart attack, you can condense it down into a much simpler algorithm. But those kinds of situations, yes, you, you want to avoid the kind of information overload of, of thinking too much about it. And I think, by the way, what I try and argue in the book is that there are these distinct phases that you want to have in a decision process. And those phases should be finite. Like, this should not be an excuse to just mull a decision for, you know, a, a year or two, right? You should go through an initial phase where you map all the different alternatives and then a phase where you predict what the outcomes might be and then a, and a phase when you finally decide. So those should be finite in length. It's not, something, it's not an excuse to just ruminate forever. Yeah. I thought of, you know, the psychologist Roy Baumeister has a lovely phrase. I'm going to botch it. It's something like a useful degree of delusion. <laughs> and the useful degree of delusion is an observation made that when you look at um, happy couples, for example, and you ask them about their spouse, what you discover is that their image of their spouse is not grounded in reality. They <laughs> think their spouse is far more attractive than they actually are, far more intelligent than they actually are devoid of all sorts of, of flaws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they are deluded, but they're in a, deluded in a lovely and useful way. You could make the same observation, of course, about entrepreneurs, that if an entrepreneur was rational, they wouldn't start the company because most companies fail. Right. If you're rational, you would go to dentistry school, right? That is the rational. Why would, or become an accountant. No, actually, dentist is the best. People are always going to need to have their teeth fixed. And it's a steady income. There's a need for dentists. Right. And then you can make up new uses when they, if they brush your teeth and they don't have cavities, then you cap the teeth, right? You can constantly, it's a fantastic business. <laughs> but there are there, I don't think there's any dentists in this room. Most people in this room have chosen to do something that's a little bit irrational. Right. So if they were entirely rational decision makers, and if they went through an exhaustive rational process, wouldn't we have suboptimal outcomes? People would never get married. And they wouldn't start any businesses, and we would all be single dentists. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that I, I guess I wouldn't describe what I'm arguing for in this book as a purely rational process, because yeah. what it really is trying to do is I mean, the word that keeps coming up in the book again and again is diversity, right? Like trying to approach the problem you're wrestling with 
from diverse angles, from diverse perspectives, to have a team of people around you that are analyzing from different ways, to challenge yourself to build alternative stories about how things could turn out. And, and because, you know, the flip side of that, you know, irrational exuberance and, and confidence is overconfidence and confirmation bias. And you get really excited about an idea and you jump into it and it turns out you miss something important. Like one of the examples in, in, in the book, we talk about scenario planning, which is this technique that was developed in the in the 70s largely as a, as a kind of business technique. And it's really a storytelling exercise, right? You're like confronting this big choice and you, as an exercise, you tell three or four stories about the future if we decide to you know, launch this new product or if we decide to do this in our lives. Tell three or four different stories about how that might pan out. And one of the exercises that I love is one where you tell three different versions of the story. One where things get better, one where things get worse, and one where things get weird. Right? And, the, and that exercise of trying to imagine what that future is where things get weird, even if it doesn't happen, ends up opening you to kind of new possibilities or seeing things that you might not have seen and helps you kind of just perceive the landscape more clearly. I don't, I don't see that to me doesn't strike me as being a rational, you know, it's like I've computed the answer to this problem and, you know, with 97% probability, I think this is the right choice. I suppose I'm more on the create your own future. I, I don't think about the future really at all. So this is why this book is sort of fascinating to me because it's a series of discussions of things that never cross my <laughs> mind. Um, I just assume I can't. I, I think that one of the things that maybe makes us uniquely human and that causes a lot of anxiety as well, as, you know, that sometimes doesn't feel like it's worth all the advance that we get from it, is just the ability to think about the future at all. Right, you know, even the great apes don't have much of a sense of a future beyond, you know, a day or something like that. Right? There, there's no sense of like, hey, let's meet in six months and revisit this issue. Right? That's not something that is available to them. And so, anxiety or depression is a disorder of our ability to project in the future. And that what happens when you're depressed is that you run those future projections, and every time you get the same response from your emotional system, which is that seems bleak. Um, or I can't see a way this will work out. And when we're anxious, it's like, oh, I am constantly running these you know, scenarios about the future, and every time it makes me feel really on edge or whatever. And so um, it both is a source of our, you know, to invent and to create, you have to be able to imagine a world where the thing you're inventing exists in the future, right? You have to be able to think about the consequences of what this will be like, even though the thing doesn't exist yet. So that is something that massively unlocked our ability to to create and innovate and build the technological world we live in. On the other hand, it then creates all these problems because when we have a kind of emotional disorders about that future perspective, um, those can be incredibly painful. You know, listening to you talk, I'm going to offer, this is going to seem frivolous, and it's not. It's actually very serious. Um, that really what you're describing are ways of managing anxiety. So why do we build these, as you described, very beautifully in your book, there are ways to build very sophisticated methodologies about how to think about tomorrow and the effect of your actions. Maybe the point of that exercise is not that it necessarily improves your position vis-a-vis -vis the future, but it allows you to sleep at night about the future, right? And that's not trivial. That's actually right. very, I mean, particularly in the modern age, the reason that in the pre-modern world, we assume the future would perfectly resemble the present, is that that removed an extraordinary amount of anxiety from people's lives. That's one mechanism. That's one way of dealing with it. I put my head in the sand and I think it's all going to be the same. 
once you open yourself up to the possibility that the world could be radically different next year, then you have invited a nightmarish number of possibilities into your head. And the question is, now I'm sort of playing shrink, what do you do with that anxiety? And one answer to that is, well, we build these structures that give us the illusion of, not certainty, but the illusion that we're prepared for some future eventuality, even though it's just an illusion. You're not prepared. Here's the way I'd push back to you on this. So would you give that same speech to the folks at Facebook and at Google who are unleashing all these new technologies that are disrupting all these different industries? Is your advice to them, you can't predict the consequences of these technologies, so just kind of wing it, and we'll see what happens. It'll be great. Or should you spend some time thinking about, hey, if we release this particular, make this change, if we create this advertising model, how could it be exploited? Let's run a bunch of scenarios thinking about what the vulnerabilities could be. How could, let's run the pre-mortem on what could happen to the news business if we unleash. Don't you think that that is, even if you can't predict the future with certainty, isn't it, wouldn't it be a better exercise for the people who are inventing the future to at least run multiple mm-hmm. scenarios? Well, remember, they're operating in a, they're essentially state-protected monopolies. When, if you say to me, I'm going to allow you to get so big that you can squash every competitor, and I can allow you to have several hundred million dollars in the bank, and I'll give you privileged position in all kinds of markets, predicting the future becomes super easy within my little world. Like, it's just not that hard to be Google and run scenarios about what happens next year, because you control next year. Now, if you're, if you're like a little guy somewhere, it gets difficult. But I don't think I, I genuinely think that Google and Facebook did not see what they were doing. No, we're now, yes, no. To my point, they didn't yeah. see what they were doing. But now, now they can. Now, when you're right, when you're that big, I mean, they're not making. Remember the kinds of things that keep Mark Zuckerberg up at night. He's not thinking about liberal democracy or the world environment or. No, he's thinking about like you know what thing you land on on the Facebook page or some little tweak to Instagram. So he's making predictions within an extraordinarily narrow realm over which he has an extraordinary amount of control and over which society has decided that he has a virtual monopoly. So that's a very specific scenario that has no point of comparison to the kinds of hard decisions that we're talking about now, like the choice of whether to go to, you know, who to marry or where to send your kids to school is infinitely harder than the choices Mark Zuckerberg faces. He will pretend otherwise, and he's lying. (laughs) Mark Zuckerberg probably does consult with a group of people about Facebook's choices before casting his vote. But lots of groups lack a clear leader. So how do they make their decisions? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. In 1760, New York City is a bustling community of more than 18,000 people. If you live there, one of your biggest daily challenges is to find fresh drinking water. You know enough to avoid the cisterns and public wells, which tend to be contaminated with waste from privies. Instead, you take your leather bucket to the collect pond, 
70 acres of clean, clear water supplied by two underground streams. But soon, tanneries arrived by twos and threes and set up along the shore, responding to the demand for leather. As the years go by, you watch the water grow darker as the tanneries dump acid into the pond. Skinned animal carcasses float on the surface. Now you can't drink the water unless it's boiled. No wonder you value your tea. The tanneries are eventually banished by law, but it's too late to save the pond as a water source. So the city decides to turn it into a landfill. By 1811, the Collect Pond is gone for good. It's a classic case of the tragedy of the commons, where people or companies destroy a public resource that could benefit everyone. You can see it play out all over the world, like in Bangladesh, where a modern tannery dumps its waste into a river choked with trash. What are those women doing? They are cleaning some plastics, and you can see the water. It's, um, it's horrible. It's very, very toxic. Is there chemical in that water? Oh, definitely. You can, you can see with your um, open eyes. From what I'm understanding, they're eating the fish, they're drinking the water, they're getting diseases like hepatitis, uh, severe diarrhea problems. It's essentially poison being ingested into their body. In his book, Farsighted, Stephen Johnson writes that ordinary people rarely have a say in how common resources are managed. When they do, he says, when cities or companies bring citizens into their decision-making process, the choices they make tend to be more about the future than about short-term gain. One of the other recurring themes of the book is um, urban planning. Right? There are a lot of stories about urban planning, and there, it starts actually with this great old New York story about this collect pond, which was the only source of fresh water uh, in New York City, and even before there was a New York City. And when the Dutch settled and then the British came, it got increasingly polluted. People started dumping dead livestock there. And over time, tanneries opened up and they basically poisoned it. And there was this choice that the city had to make, this kind of collective choice that the city had to make of like, what do we do with this? And they originally actually decided to make a park out of this uh, area, and they hired Pierre Lafont, um, who would later on go on to design Washington, D.C., and they created this plan for it. This is basically where Canal Street is now. And they were going to do a kind of public-private partnership with the city um, where real estate people were going to fund it kind of the way they do now with houses around it. And it ended up not happening because the real estate people were like, no one will ever live that far north. Um, you know, it was like Canal Street, and, and it was 1780. Uh, so that was an example of not long-term, far-sighted decision-making. Yeah. Or is it? So I was recently chatting with some people at a big pharmaceutical company, very successful company. And they, will make, they make the observation that all pharmaceutical companies, big pharmaceutical companies make, which is we have a ton of money, extraordinary amount of re- expertise, shiny laboratories. We don't invent anything here. Mm. Everything of value we buy from little tiny struggling companies that are basically in strip malls, and then we just uh, we use our cash to develop them and market them. So they always and they always say, "What's what are we doing wrong? We have all the smart people and all the money, and they're inventing all the ideas." So is it because are they suffering from a lack of consideration in their decision making process relative to their tiny counterparts in strip malls? No, the people at the fancy company are engaged in the very kinds of decision-making processes you have described. The people in the strip mall have no time for any of that. They're just doing stuff that they think might be interesting. So I'm wondering, I, I grant you there are many situations where considered decision-making is 
incredibly useful. Yeah. But there does seem to be a category of things where, in the real world, how come the big company isn't embedding stuff if all of this decision-making processes is so useful? Well, I think that you're conflating two different things, which is, I think that is the process you're describing as the, the process of innovation and not so much complex decision-making, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's a creative process. But, but and why are they two different things? Aren't they the same thing? I think of them as being different. You're trying to create, I mean, they, they share some principles, right? I mean, the diversity of perspectives principle is really important for innovation. Um, Cross-disciplinary thinking is really important for innovation and partially important for decision-making. But the, the act of inventing a whole new, you know, set of molecules to treat some disease or, you know, creating a novel or creating a new tech startup, I think is does have some fundamental different properties from you know, de deciding where to go to college or uh, which path to go on in, in your career. They're, they're different kinds of mental exercises. I think we tend to assume that big companies don't innovate um, or they innovate at a, at a lower rate than startups um, because we have a skewed perception of the startup world. We only hear about the, the startups that, that win. Yeah. And so we see these big companies that, you know, that actually do introduce some interesting new products in, in the tech space. You know, Google and, and Apple continue to come up with new interesting things. But we also see the things that they seem kind of stuck on. And, we, you know, we perceive all of their output. But we only hear about, you know, Slack. We don't hear about the 45 other tech startups that failed to come up with a compelling product in that exact space. Um, and so it creates a, a sense that, you know, nimble small firms are disproportionately driving new ideas when, in fact, it is possible to have new ideas at bigger firms. Um, but that's partially because those firms have learned how to create environments where innovation can actually still prosper, right? They understand, okay, we got to have small, agile teams inside our big organization, and, you know, we have to create startup-like kind of ecosystems inside our organization. So I think it is, there's a bit of a myth of big companies not actually being capable of innovation that's out there. One of the things I'm, I'm really interested in, in, t in terms of innovation, is companies that are experimenting with a kind of a porous membrane with their, the boundaries of their organization and trying to kind of open up ways in which you have people who are working for the company, but also people who are in the community who are sharing some of that space with people in the company. And you have incubators and startups that are part of the community around the company, but they are rubbing shoulders and sharing ideas in the hallways with, with people who are officially working for Amazon or the big company. Um, like, I, I love this trend. I was just reading about it the other day of big companies starting co-working spaces so that people outside the firm can have some access to people inside the firm. I think it's, it's just healthy for companies to start to blur those boundaries. Um, what would a sociologist say if he were to read or she were to read? Farsighted. She would say... The issue is not how well do we make decisions. Very often, we know what the right outcome is, but we can't make it happen because of entrenched interests. Yeah. Or, and that's where I thought that was the sociologist position is actually sort of interesting. Is it really the case that the way we make decisions is what the problem is? Or is it the case that we know fully well that we're supposed to tackle global warming, but we can't get it past the Republican Congress and a bunch of really powerful corporate interests. We won't magically win that battle by improving our um, scenario planning. The scenario planning's fine. Well, that is certainly a problem. I remember when I first came to New York in the early 90s, reading the, I've forgotten who it was, the Urban Land Institute, or some, there's a kind of 
do-gooder urban planning group in New York that produces a plan. Yeah. I remember reading the plan. It's, fantastic. it's an amazing plan. It's, it solves every problem we have in New York in terms of transportation. It's been around for 30 years. Right. Right. It, why, it's not like they've gone through, they've done all the heavy lifting. They're like, this, you put this here and this here and bingo. Yeah. You can get to work in five minutes. And <laughs> we don't, why don't we do it? Because, you know, yeah. it's money, it's Albany, it's... But I, there is, I think there is a lot of progress in terms of the process through which cities now decide, for instance, to build a park or not build a park in terms of environmental sustainability, in terms of building a kind of stakeholder community around. Like, there are a set of techniques that people now use where they try and basically get input from all the people who might be potentially impacted by this, by this park or by, you know, burying this pond or doing something like that. Like, we would, if there was a giant pond in the middle of Manhattan right now, we would not as cavalier, what they ended up doing is filling it, um, and then the landfill degraded because of all the dead animals and bodies uh, in the landfill, and that, because of the biomass decaying, uh, that neighborhood became Five Points, the, the kind of classic slum of gangs of New York. So it ended up creating this kind of legendary neighborhood in New York in a, in a strange way. We would not fill the pond as cavalierly as we did back then now, right? And we do have, there. I mean, yes, it is true, it is complicated, it's hard to get things done, it's a city of eight million people, but there are techniques that have been developed in terms of creating a design charrette where you have a bunch of different stakeholders from different points of view who come together and, and, and look at the problem and talk about what their values are and that, what they need in their community, there are techniques that have been developed. They are imperfectly implemented. And they are trying to deal with decisions that, because they are collective decisions, are really hard ones to make. But some of those techniques I think we can learn from. Charrette is a French word that literally means carriage. In urban planning, it's an open process where people meet in small groups to discuss a proposed plan or suggest new ideas. A few years ago, the federal government assembled a charrette of environmentalists and representatives from industry and government to figure out the social cost of carbon emissions. Together, they came up with a number, $36 a ton. That figure went on to become a baseline for fuel economy standards. Stephen says it's an example of a diverse group coming up with something that people outside the process can trust. We are now trying to do something as a species that we have never done before, which is um, both with climate change and other things like you know, artificial intelligence and superintelligence. We're having conversations about problems that are 10, 20, 50 years away that are based on our projections about where we think the climate or where we think the technology is headed, that are new problems that we haven't faced before, um, but because of our intelligence, because of our ability to simulate these incredibly complex systems, because of the technology on some level, we believe we're going to have a serious problem in 20 years or 50 years or whatever you think it is. And human beings have in the past thought on that scale in terms of building institutions that they want to last for 20 years or 100 years or 1,000 years. Um, but that kind of anticipatory problem solving of like, hey, we, don't, we aren't really facing this problem now, but we need to think about it in 20 or 30 years, and so we should change our behavior now because of that. I mean, every time you make a decision about a consumer decision about buying this or not buying this because you're thinking somewhere about the carbon outputs into the atmosphere, you are thinking on a 20, 30, 40-year scale about future developments in the climate. No one ever thought like that before. It's like people in 1800 sitting around like inventing the industrial age, being like, this is great. These factories are really good. And the steam power, we could probably invent a railroad. But looks like we're outputting carbon. And that could be a problem in 200 years. We should really do something about that. Like, they couldn't even imagine. They didn't, they didn't have the science to do that. And so 
on the one hand, you can look at it and say, hey, yeah, our tech, we're really bad at making these decisions and, and you know, we're, why are we we're hitting all these roadblocks and all this is really depressing, and it is. On the other hand, we need to recognize that we're trying to make choices as a society that we haven't ever tried to do before, and we're not great at it yet, but the fact that we're trying is impressive. So to make forward-looking decisions and make them stick, we need to hear from people with a range of experiences and expertise. But how do we actually do that? Steven Johnson says we all have the tools and they're sitting right in our pockets. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. We all face major decisions at key points in our lives. We also have big decisions to make as a society, even as a species. Steven Johnson doesn't claim these decisions will be easy but he says we do have powerful tools at our disposal. In his book, Farsighted, Johnson writes about the psychologist Philip Tetlock's work on forecasting. Tetlock found that some people are much better than others at reading the signs about what's coming. He calls them super forecasters, and he says we can learn a lot from how they go about their business. Malcolm Gladwell isn't impressed. You talk about Tetlock, you know, Philip Tetlock, you describe his yeah. work on forecasts where he assembles thousands of people and tracks their forecasts over 17 years, tens of thousands of them, and discovers basically everyone's bad at it, with a couple of really tiny... The only logical response to that work is to say, that's it. I'm not doing it again. I'm walking away. I don't, know what, I don't even yeah. know what tomorrow looks like. It's pointless. So... <laughs> I feel like we're getting a really interesting glimpse inside of Malcolm's head, which is great. Um, so first off, Tetlock did find a statistically meaningful subset of forecasters yeah, who were better than... First of all, super rare. Right, but, Secondly, but, why, but they had techniques. And, and they, they were just a little bit better than chance. Still, so, I mean, the future is important. If you can beat chance, right, you can make a fortune beating that house no, in Vegas. I, like if you the can fact beat that there is a tiny house. fraction of people who are right 54% of the time does not make me sleep well at night. I've right. the prospect of, like, all right, so I'm so, going to toss a coin and, and I'm going to be four times out of 100, they're going to beat me. But look, I, I, will, I will agree with you to the extent that there is a great quote um, from Paul Graham, the venture capitalist who I often disagree with on things, but he has some quote where he says, I'm often asked because I invest in technology companies to like, predict the future. And 
I've decided that I always decline to do this because I've decided it actually hurts me, in a sense, to build a working model of what's going to happen in the future because the future is really unpredictable. And the downside of that working model is that it will narrow my vision, and I'll be looking for this particular outcome that I think is coming, and I won't see the, the future that actually arrives. Mm -hmm. And so instead of making a big prediction, what I try and do is just be open to as many new developments as, as possible. And so a bit like, you know, podcasting comes along, and I'm like, hey, while well, I'm a New Yorker writer and a, a successful book author, but this podcasting thing is interesting, I'm open to it, and, you know, sure, I'll try it. And, and that that way of relating to the future, where you're not necessarily, like, building a full forecast, but you are looking for clues and signs about what's coming, right? And I think that's a more open-ended, more kind of creative, less rational way of bringing the future into your decision-making process. It's not that you've told a story that you're convinced it's going to happen. You've made a forecast that you're convinced it's going to happen. But you are looking for these clues. I just saw this interview with um, Stuart Brand where he was talking about, he, was, he gave the speech for the blockchain kind of world somewhere. And, and he said, you know, one of the best ways to think about the future is to just look where new words are forming. Like when you see the language like straining to invent new words, you know that there are new experiences that are starting to happen. And you know, whatever section of the you know, kind of annual list of new words, neologisms, whatever it is, that if you see a pattern there, wow, there are a lot of new words forming around these technologies or these scientific developments, that's a sign that something interesting is happening there that you should pay attention to. So that's, I mean, I think that's a way of integrating the future into your life is just to be, it's that psychological trait of openness to experience, like trying to just make sure you are open to new stimuli when you stumble across it and that you write it down mm -hmm. so you go back and revisit it six years later in your commonplace book in your notepad. And that's what Tetlock's successful super forecasters did, right? They scored very high on the openness to experience kind of curiosity mm -hmm. side of the spectrum. And I suspect you do too. I think you probably are a very curious person. And that leads you to interesting, successful kind of future developments without having to build an actual forecast. That's my theory about yeah. it. Johnson says we're lucky to live in an age where we can actively pursue our curiosity online, following the hyperlinks wherever they take us. Plus, we have an amazing resource in our own social networks, which let us gather, debate, test, and refine ideas in ways that we never could before. But creating a truly diverse network takes a little work. I have done exactly that, and that's Twitter for me. I mean, honestly, that's what Twitter is for me. Um, and I think it's a side of the echo that chamber. Is so fantastic. You honestly think that Twitter yes. is a, quote, diverse group? Well, be, oh, oh, one second. <laughs> so the, the, the argument that is traditionally made about social media is that it is this force for polarization and echo chamber and like-minded birds of a feather flocking together with stuff like that. And there's a lot of... I, I think most of the scholarship that has looked at this has actually found that social media environments are actually much more diverse and much more likely to kind of create surprise connections and links than real-world environments, which are much more increasingly so um, polarized and echo chamber-like. Um, you know, it's, it's social media is vaguely polarized, but your church or your office or your club that you go to, you know, your bowling group, that's way more birds of a feather than the online space. But whether you think the online world is creating more and more echo chambers um, or not, if you choose to create an interesting, eclectic group of people to follow, and if you control what you see, unlike on Facebook, where the algorithm is controlling, where you're just seeing like, what those people you follow share, um, it's the greatest instrument in the history of communications for creating an eclectic like, daily feed of, of interesting links and, and stimulus. And so what I do in my feed, I mean, it's 
diverse, intellectually diverse, right? Um, and so I follow musicians, and I follow political writers, and I, and I follow tech people, and I follow Malcolm, who doesn't post very often. And, you know, and I, you know, I follow some friends, and I follow, you know, just a, a whole range of you know, art historians and, and all these folks across all these different disciplines. And every single day, I stumble across something through those, not so much in the tweets, but in the links and people, what people are pointing to, that, you know, this new album just came out, or there's this, you know, new show on Netflix that's really interesting, and there's this new article in The New Yorker that I hadn't seen. And... It's a serendipity engine, right? It's constantly driving me towards kind of new discoveries. But that's because I have made the choice of trying to get an interesting, I've, I've curated that group um, over time. And it's not a huge group. It's, I don't know what it is, like 300 people or something like that. Um, and I prune it when people are not delivering kind of good material. But it's like the, you know, I mean, I've written a lot about like the coffeehouse culture of the 18th century, like people getting together with a bunch of eclectic interests and having these open-ended conversations. Like, I mean, Twitter has lost some of that in the sense that it's so dominated by the political conversation, which is appropriate because we're living in a scary time politically, and I understand that. But it still is a constant source of surprise and discovering that feeling of, like, I didn't know that I was interested in this, but I am. But that's because I have cultivated this, this group of people to, to follow. Shouldn't Twitter have a shuffle function? <laughs> no, I'm dead serious. So, yeah. so imagine if... Twitter makes a first cut for us and says, yep. I'm going to remove all the frivolous posters. So no more cats, although I miss my cat videos. Yeah. But within that universe, let's say that universe is, I'm throwing out a number, 100,000 people. Yeah. Then surely the most useful thing would be shuffle. So every day they reshuffle. They give me 25 people every day, and it's a new 25 chosen at random from the universe of that, to me, strikes me as... Because, I mean, as I listen to you I, you, know, I have the same thing. I get valuable stuff out of Twitter. But I, am, I have a much smaller group that I follow than you, and that's precisely the problem, mm-hmm. that I have pre-selected the group, and so I baked in my own biases. So Malcolm is dubious about the power of social networks, but Stephen argues that if we use them right, they give us access to a broad range of ideas and information, which we need if we want to get things right. He says we tend to see good ideas as individual achievements and to think that innovation dies in committee. But there's something between individuals and committees, and that's networks, right? That's informal networks of collaboration of people who are like, I have part of this idea, you have part of this idea, hey, we met and we talked about it, or like, I read this paper you wrote and I built on this, whatever. And what, I mean, one of the common themes of everything that I've written, I would say, probably, is that we, we spend way too much time valorizing the, the individual genius inventor and not nearly enough time celebrating the actual networks that make ideas into reality and that, and that end up changing the world and driving change and progress and stuff like that. So I, I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm all in, in this other project. I'm researching the history of antibiotics and penicillin. And, you know, it's like everybody knows that, you know, they're like Fleming and the penicillin spore and he's, you know, accidentally in his lab. And, you know, that's a kind of classic story. But, like, if you actually try and figure out how penicillin went from that discovery even before that to a shipping drug like it's hundreds of people who each of whom contributed crucial components to it and we distort the story and create these artificial kind of narratives that then distort the way that people think about their careers and what they do when we celebrate these kind of individual geniuses and and what I was the kind of new thought that I've had recently which I'm sure other people have talked about is 
this is one of the distortions of the whole prize process, right? Like that, like the, the Nobel prizes are all about like who was the one or two, you know, folks who figured it out and invented this thing or solved this big problem. And there, as far as I know, there are no prizes for, you know, networks. So like this is the cluster of 20, 30 people. Yeah, the boundaries are porous. It's hard to really define it. But really, that's what we should be celebrating. It's like these 15 or 20 people spread out over time and spread out geographically, no doubt, who all contributed key ingredients to give us this breakthrough that we all now benefit from. And so, because if we don't celebrate those kinds of organizational structures, then we won't be actually celebrating the things that actually bring us innovation in the first place. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank, well, thank you, Mark. <laughs> Thanks for coming out, everyone. So Stephen Johnson argues that networked communities tend to make better decisions than individuals. With that in mind, I want to invite you to join the network community that is the Next Big Idea Club. It's not only a great platform for readers, writers, and lifelong learners, it's a source for the best curated nonfiction in print, video, and audio. To join and get a free copy of Stephen's book, Farsighted, visit nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast and use promo code farsighted. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast, promo code farsighted. If you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find the episode notes, including some details you may have missed. Special thanks today to Steven Johnson. His book, Farsighted, How We Make the Decisions That Matter the Most, is available everywhere books are sold. Thanks also to Malcolm Gladwell, who conducted the interview. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Phyllis Cannon. Sound design is by Kyle Randall. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producer is Michael Kovnat. Our senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. <laughs>